0: Hello everyone, I'm Simon Ford of Ford's Gin. Martinis, gin and tonics, Negronis, great classic cocktails is what I'm about, but I also love to hear of great recipes
1: from great bartenders from around the world, which is why we've partnered with Beyond The Drink for this
2: season. Cheers. Well, you just heard from the man himself, Simon Ford, and this season of Beyond The Drink is brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. I'm Cappy, and in this series, we're going to hear from some of the best bartenders in the country as they share the stories and recipes behind their favorite drinks. Beyond the Drink is a spin-off of Beyond the Plate, our podcast that sits down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their communities. We invite you to check out this season of Beyond the Plate, where we're featuring some of the greatest restaurant and hospitality duos. And if you're new to Beyond the Drink, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to create a delicious cocktail or, like the bartenders we feature, make a difference in your community. To get the cocktail recipe we discussed in this episode, check out the episode notes in your podcast player or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. One more thing, we have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch. You can find the link in your podcast player or go to our website beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, hoodies, and more. Again, that's beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. All right, gentlemen, let's start with a quick audio test. We're going to have you both name three of something. So, Ben, why don't you kick us off? Name three ingredients you love to use with gin.
1: Ginger, togarashi, apricots.
2: Love it. Jamie, how about you? Name three ingredients you love to use with gin. Yuzu, rosemary, peach. Love it. You guys sound good. Let's do it. We are back with another duo, and today's bartending duo are some of Nashville's finest owning and operating a number of different bars together. Their innovative approach has helped ramp up the level of expectation in Nashville from a passed over market to one of national acclaim. First up, Ben Clemens is a hospitality veteran having logged over 20 years behind the bar. He's trained with industry legends, which led him to becoming an active cocktail competitor, winning dozens of competitions around the world. Next up, Jamie White is a multifaceted entrepreneur and musician based in Nashville. Each of his establishments reflects his commitment to creating unique and enjoyable experiences for patrons using his keen eye for detail and quality. You can find more on them in the episode notes and follow Ben on Instagram at Ben Staying Home and Jamie at Jamie Sky Guy. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the drink with two people that Simon Ford of Ford's Gin calls... Nashville Bartender Royalty, Ben Clemens, and Jamie White. Well, shit, guys, that's pretty high praise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: thanks, Simon. (laughs) We're done done here, right? We're good?
2: (laughs) I love it. All right, guys, let's do a little warm-up speed round before we get going with these cocktails here. Number one, we'll start with you, Ben. Name the cocktail that inspired you to get behind the bar.
1: Ooh, rent. (laughs) (laughs) No, it, it was probably, as weird as it is, everything comes all back around full circle, but it was the martini When I was a little kid, I don't want to say little kid, but when I was growing up, my mom and dad were classic in that way. Like Dad comes home at 5 p.m. and mixes up a cocktail, and he had me stirring drinks for him when I was a kid, and so I always had this fascination of wanting to really nail the martini
0: and Manhattan. How about you, Jamie? I guess what got me into cocktail world is probably different than what got me into just bar in general, but I remember a friend coming over that just moved here from New York 20 years ago. And he made a Remember the Main for me at my house. And I was just like, it was just a whole new world for me. That was just kind of a a start getting into it. So,
2: Ben, name a smell behind the bar you love. I actually
1: really love the smell when a drink that has been lit on fire. Rare. It happens a lot here at Pearl Diver, when the like the dehydrated citrus and sometimes the whatever herbs are with it begin to catch fire. There's just this beautiful smell to it that,
0: to me, just is exciting.
2: Yeah. How about you, Jamie?
0: For me here at Pearl, it's when we cook our Thai tea. That's a good
2: one. How about name a smell behind the bar you hate?
0: Oh, the d- old beer line. Every smell that doesn't yeah. smell like a clean bar. <laughs> yeah. just a, a yeasty old bar drain. Yeah. That's just the worst.
2: All right. Last one. The one gin-based cocktail everyone needs to try.
0: I mean, outside the martini, I, I love an Army-Navy. I think that's a, a good one that's approachable for everybody. I'd say the
1: Pomada, lesser known drink, super classic. I want to say it's either Mallorca or Minorca. Just gin, lemon, ginger, soda, super simple, but it's absolutely just a complete crusher all year long.
2: All right, guys, uh, you both brought some cocktails for us today, but why don't we kick it off with you, Ben? Why don't you share a little bit about the cocktail um, you brought for us?
1: Sure. The one that we're talking about right now is the Lost Bird. It's a drink I've had in the arsenal for, I'd say, going a little over a decade now. It was my tongue-in-cheek... Pump that up. Longer than a decade. Okay. Yeah, I'm old, man. I get these things sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's been a whirlwind since I've moved here. It was like my tongue-in-cheek rebuttal to Phil Ward's final ward, which was his whiskey take on a last word. And I was like, well, man, I just really want to take that whole concept to the beach with me. So I swapped out a few things, switched up the, let's see, instead of going with Chartreuse, we went with the Genepe just to kind of lighten it up a little bit, not make it so punch you in the face. For the sweet aspect, I opted for making a coconut cream. I mean, you could easily sub out just standard Coco Lopez, but we tend to make things a little bit more difficult for ourselves around here. Fresh lime, and obviously it's a shaking cocktail rather than the the final word, which he went more spirit forward. And the end result is just this beautifully light but yet somewhat decadent cocktail that's got a lot of depth because of the way that the chartreuse and the coconut play together with a lot of the botanicals falling in the gin and yeah it's always it's one of my favorites and a crowd
0: favorite yeah that's been one that's been like hard to take off for menu so it stayed with us for
2: a while that's cool so it's like a take on a take
0: yeah i mean i was like oh well fine if phil's gonna make his own
1: version of the last word we'll watch everybody look out here we go No one's going to see this here in Nashville 15 years ago.
2: could you take us through it really quick in terms of like. Sure,
1: the build. Yeah. So you've got 1.5 parts of uh, Ford's gin, one part of uh, cocoa cream. You've got three fourths of a part <laughs> of fresh lime juice, definitely fresh lime juice, and three fourths of a part of Genevieve de Alps. Shaken, served usually highball. Over pebble ice, we like to garnish it here with a dehydrated lime wheel and a
2: nice, healthy mint sprig. Nice. like it. Sounds good.
0: Yeah. She's a banger. Yeah.
2: Jamie, what do you got for us today?
0: I did two. I did one for Pearl and one for good times. At Pearl, we have, it's not on the menu currently, but the Shibua Crossing, which is like funny because... There's like a, what's that crappy uh, Jameson drink that everybody, the green tea shots. Everybody had been doing those like all over. So it was kind of a way to like class that drink up. And I had just got back from Japan and was at the Shibuya Crossing. And this is just a fun thing with some yuzu. And then we use a, a peach, a liqueur, gin, and then green tea syrup. So it was kind of a way to classy up that drink and get Fords in there.
2: How do you go about that green tea syrup?
0: Pretty easy. I mean, just making a simple syrup with some green tea bags in it. Uh, as easy as that. I mean, you don't want to keep it in there too long because it'll, the tea will become bitter. So yeah, equal parts sugar, water, and then just a couple tea bags, which is great. And then yuzu, of course, is like a bitter citrus from Asia. So you can use less of that. Then a, a normal lemon, which is great. And then the one I did for Good Times. Good Times is like a fun little concept. of, And it's like a the dark ages of drinks, apple teenies and Long Islands. But it's a kind of a fresh take on all those. So we put a gimlet on the menu, again, using yuzu. And that's one of my favorites with gin. Uh, a rosemary syrup, Ford's, and just a little splash of St. Germain. Bartender's ketchup in there. Bartender's
2: ketchup. I feel like I have heard that and I f- I forgot about it, but I like it.
0: Yeah, Jimmy did a really cool
1: thing with that with Good Times. I definitely suggest you swing by there if you're ever in Nashville. They found the way to take that like creepy. Weird uncle time frame of the cocktail world, and actually give those drinks a little bit of recognition in the right way. So it's cool.
2: Can you tell me more? I'm curious, like the Japan influence. Did you love yuzu like before that? Was that a recent trip, or, or did it where a lot of these influence from that, or not necessarily?
0: I think in general, you can kind of watch all of our bars have a little bit of influence through travel. Pearl Diver, definitely 100% is that. We spent a good time of traveling before we opened. I mean, Japan, Brazil, Jamaica, Cuba, Mexico, Thailand. It's terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And really we wanted to learn, (laughs) we always see so many different versions of a caperina, mojito, a daiquiri, but like, how do they make it? How do they drink it? And how do they use the ingredients they use? everything that we do is taken from travel yeah i mean when
1: we were in cuba we like flew down on our buddy's four-person prop plane and it was before the embargo was originally lifted it was really out of place for a just anyone from america showing up in cuba at that point you had to took us like a year of red tape to be able to finagle getting in there especially like getting cleared for landing a personal plane and all that but when we got into havana and we were running around i think having an absolutely legit mojito for me anyways, and I'm pretty sure you felt the same way about it. It's kind of why Pearl exists is that we were just like, it's one of those moments where this is what a mojito is. What have we all been doing back there? I mean, some of the the most highly decorated cocktail bars and bartenders and mentors that we've known still were, you know, taking it to this other level that the end result was a far cry from the way it was. It's almost like it was at a time. I, I think that it's, Hopefully, you're the, especially the American bartending community is beginning to pull back from that a little bit of going too far to the extreme where it's almost like some people had, couldn't let a simple drink be a simple drink. So you had to take it home and you had to shake it and then you had to make a syrup out of the, the herbs and you had to find strain. And do, it's like then you go to where these things, where they came from and drink one alongside everybody. Bartenders have been making them for forty years and you're like wow, we messed up, <laughs> you know? And so that kind of got all over our Head wheels spinning, and we were like, okay, let's go back and make a spot that really celebrates the authenticity of a lot of these cocktails that have, for more or less, they been bastardized by American bartenders, no matter what skill level.
2: Did you guys come back and want to simplify to what you experienced, or did you take a technique or ingredient that you experienced and kind of riff on that? All of that.
1: All, all of I it mean, there usually, were certain things like our daiquiri. We had there was an old guy uh, on the side of the street he was hand pressing sugarcane juice and. We were like, oh, we've got to try that. So we drank some. And the viscosity, the velvet, it was just so velvety. And it wasn't actually that that potently sweet like I thought it was going to be. And he and I just looked at each other we're like, why is nobody making daiquiris with sugarcane this is exactly what this is how it's, this is this a sugarcane spirit and it's not being done like this so we came home and we got to work and we came up with what i would say is probably one of the best daiquiris you'll ever have in your life because it's being made with a sweetener that is the exact base of the
0: rum in the drink. <laughs> yeah, as soon as we landed back in America, we ordered a sugar cane press, yep. and barbacks absolutely hate us for it.
2: Makes a difference, I'm sure, though. It's, it's a world of difference, yeah.
0: it's It's great
1: and trying to catch up trying to catch that same kind of panache that like an actual margarita would have you know even though the margarita is debatable about where that even comes from this is such a really weird and argumentable history on that one there are certain things like that where you step up the levels after you've spent a lot of time traveling in those countries and then other things you realize that this culture has overextended itself and you want to pull it back and I mean, when we opened Pearl Diver, a lot of people had never had a mojito done the way that a mojito is done in Cuba, you know, and giving or serving somebody a Floridita, which everybody thinks is a Hemingway daiquiri. And you're like, yeah. this is what he actually felt. cheers drinking, you know what I mean? And You know, not everybody has the opportunity to travel and get those experiences, but you'd be so remiss not to take something back with you from them and apply it. And, you know, that's kind of what our whole goal was here. And that's why we're a sugar cane and agave bar as opposed to heralding ourselves as a tiki bar or something like that, because there's a lot more adoration and respect for where these cultures came from and moving from there.
2: Can you share just like one or two examples? Like we've mentioned the mojito, like most people probably know it from I lived in Miami. So for someone who may have had one or if they vacation to Miami or somewhere like what is that? Major difference of what you saw in Havana versus what someone may have seen that's been commercialized.
1: So first off, at was it the Barrio de Medio? Is this like little bar? It's like the home of the the mojito there. And first off, that's the only drink they serve. So as you walk into this like see little Havana spot, and it's hot as all get out, there's cats everywhere, and there's just like a line of highball drinks on this bar top, and not too unlike the Irish coffee in San Francisco. At, at the wharf you know you're like this guy is just a living legend making these things by the dozens all day long and we watched the way that they were getting made and we're like huh see what he doesn't have tins (laughs) this guy is just building these things you know and just watching the process watching the steps looking at the sugar talking about the mint and then obviously sipping on the drink i think that actual part of getting the drink to the mouth was the biggest eye opener for me beyond any of the technique part it was just like sipping on this thing that we had in America. You'd think of a mojito in the sours category because of the level of citrus and that, you know, there, and most people are shaking this thing. They're making a mint syrup they're, or they're fine straining all this stuff through. And then having it there, you're like, this is a highball with some mint and a splash of lime. And we were just like, okay, we need to reapproach the way that this thing drinks because it's so light and it's not this like big, clongly sour or sweet beverage, but What's also nice about it when you're having it in Cuba, it's also it's really hot. The ice is subpar, but what you notice is that over the course of your drink, that mint starts to grow in the cocktail and it evolves as you're drinking this drink. And it was one of those things that just fascinated me and I really loved about it.
2: I can imagine that could be potentially challenging with being in nashville you know and someone trying what they may be used to from spring break in miami or something you know
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, i think uh one of the biggest things of that drink in particular too that we found was the actual type of sugar and using a caster sugar like a super fine sugar instead of just regular um it makes a world of difference to really blend in with the drink i mean and as weird as it sounds the daiquiri is probably the biggest one
1: the, I mean, I'll hang my hat on the daiquiri test.
2: I feel like someone mentioned that to me that we talked to. It's a,
1: it's a real thing. Like when you walk into a lot of bartenders, when you walk into an establishment, before you start going willy nilly on their cocktail menu, let me have a daiquiri. Let me see where what you can do with three ingredients. But what's interesting is like opening this spot and putting out an extremely authentic version of a daiquiri. So many people in the States and definitely here in Nashville, were, their mind immediately goes to New Orleans. You know, they're like, well, what kind of daiquiris you got? You got a strawberry one? You got a guava one? You got a Sour Patch Kid you know, Rice Krispie Treat daiquiri? And you're like, what's going on? We're like, no, we got a daiquiri flavored daiquiri, you know? So that was a big one, too.
2: I'm a massive Jamaica fan. Was it like a rum, rum punch type thing or not necessarily? Was there anything specific you found out there, saw out there, ingredient-wise or cocktail-wise?
1: Well, I went to Jamaica as the Appleton Rum Champion for the U.S., which was super fun back in like 2016 or something, and raised holy hell with a bunch of other great bartenders from around the world. And one of my favorite things that was imparted on me was from Joyce, the master distiller from Appleton, and she gave every single one of us the original recipe for the Mai Tai. Getting that recipe, which is also, you know, the Mai Tai, there's a, it a, it's got a dark and mucky past and future with a lot of bartenders. I mean, I remember when I was first coming up, you'd, someone would ask for a Mai Tai at a bar and see the bartender grab like any kind of juice they had. It was like, here's come some cranberry. Here comes some pineapple. Here comes this. And they're making like what's closer probably to a planter's punch or something, you know, and here's your Mai Tai. And you're like, there's none of that in the Mai Tai. That was a big one. From Jamaica for me, it was probably just more the rum too. Also,
0: I haven't been to Jamaica. He was, but the ting ray is something we do here that's just we actually bottle. I mean, a ting ray is just ray and nephew and ting soda, but we like hand bottle them and made a logo, our own little logo for it.
2: Love that. Wait, what was the spirit in that?
0: A ting ray is like in Jamaica. That's kind of like what all the
1: Jamaicans
2: were drinking when when I was there. I've had like vodka ting when I was there. So it's ray
1: and nephew.
0: Ray Nephew Rum.
1: That's like the big rum in for Jamaicans in Jamaica. They would buy like a fifth. You'd go to a nightclub and you get like a little fifth of Ray Nephew, and they give you a bottle of Ting. She's like a grapefruit soda. It's like Jamaican grapefruit soda. It's kind of more on, like, mellow kind of thing. Regardless, that's, like, the combo. And they just kind of swig them back and forth doing their thing. And it's like, and I told you, I was like, this, this drink is wild. Like, it's so simple, but people love it because Ray Nephew is it. If you've never had it, it's intense. It's it's really potent. It's got, like, strong, like, agricole taste. So you've got, like, bananas and blueberries. It's all sort of, and it's a lot of funk to it. Bringing that back, it's also bottled buy red stripe ting soda so another jamaican product so i decided to rip off the red stripe logo and turn it into a green and yellow which is the colors of ray nephew and we call it ting ray and it's just ting and ray nephew that's it touch of lime juice and they're great they're dangerous but they're great
2: that's cool I love it. All right. So I mentioned in the intro, you both are have helped raise the bar when it comes to cocktails and cocktail spots in Nashville through your projects. Can you just share? I mean, I think we've kind of like picked up what you've put down in this episode, but share a couple ways that you've help do that through your projects?
1: The first spot that I opened, which is where he and I actually joined forces, was a spot called Number 308 uh, that opened it back in 2009, 2010. And that was right after I had moved here from New York City. And I found it very odd. At that time, first off, there was only, I think, two, maybe three cocktail bars in all of town. And they all had house in the last name. It was something house. And when I got here, it was really odd. Like these bartenders were like, running around with, like, bottles of bitters in their pockets all the time. Like, they couldn't taste the spirit without having, like, a little swig of bitters with it. You could just tell there was that, like, this is a very early movement happening here with a lot of people, and it hadn't really come to fruition here. It still was very much simple whiskey, mason jar town kind of thing. Cocktails were just starting to bloom here. I mean, even the culinary scene was, was just waking up. And so the, the couple cocktail bars that did exist, they were kind of like that paint by numbers, keep it safe, speakeasy, you know, kind of like sleep easy kind of thing. Just coming from New York City, it was just like, ah, I've been to a billion of these things already. I'm, you know, I'm like, what next do you guys have, you know? So kind of set out on that path with my partners for that program to make a splash, you know, and we wanted to do something that we're going to make a speak hard and we're going to make we're going to make drinking cocktails fun, but also not exclusive. We wanted to make sure that we could build an environment where anybody could come in and have drinks. If they wanted to have cocktails, great. If they want to have a beer and shot, great. You want to have a glass of wine, great. You're not, there's no pretension. not going to make you feel bad about having one or the other. And I think the city hadn't seen that yet. That Having that level of care for the craft itself, being able to teach some of that science that I had learned over my time in New York City to these new bartenders and allowing them a chance to be able to be fun and not have to be in the arm garter with the things and all the stuff and play the game. I think that was a big eye-opener for the city for the fact that
0: they could kind of blue collar out a great cocktail spot. Yeah, I think for me, it was like, it's gonna be a travel, you know, it's what our city was missing, this level of drinks and the style of drinks. It was really important for us doing all the concepts that we have to not do anything that the city already was doing and raise that bar just in general for ourselves in the city, but also do it so well that it's an example for the rest of the country. And now even when I travel outside of the U.S., people know what that name is. If you say Pearl Diver and you're at a cocktail bar, you're like, oh, I follow you guys. Like, I like this thing you did. But I mean,
1: I think one of the most important things that we did when
0: we set out to build these programs
1: together was, you know, just kind of like in a lot of things in life, you can either spend your time looking to the left, looking to the right with your, your industry peers. And, oh, Mezcal's hot right now. Oh, okay you know, let's got to do that. Oh, everybody's freezing Aperol spritz. Oh, better jump on that. I've kind of always been of the, the mindset that if you're looking to the left and the right, the chances of tripping over what you've got in front of you is greater. So we just kind of keep our heads focused forward. Don't really spend too much time thinking about what everybody else is doing around us and blaze our own path and enjoy doing it. And as long as we're proud of what we're putting out there, and I don't really care about a trend. They come and go.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's great. I mean, even with me and my other concepts to just go, man, I drink a dive bars. I just want to have one where the bathrooms are nicer than the usual (laughs) dive bar. I go, I mean, that, that says enough, but I mean, you go to Lucky's eat a hot dog and drink a whiskey and Coke, but it's still not a, it's not a total shithole. We mop at the end of the night. (laughs) (laughs) So even if you are doing something simple, still do that. Good, you know, like nothing has to be over the top. If the drink sucks, then it looks like the coolest thing you've ever done. Who cares if it's not good? <laughs> you know.
2: Well, it seems to be working.
0: I mean, I think that's a pretty
1: big problem in a, in a lot of spots. You know, right? Like you can have a great cocktail in a boring joint, and you can have a boring cocktail in a great joint. Sometimes I think there's just so much to it. I think that's why we really love building concepts these days too. Like building concepts and and cocktail menus are probably my two favorite things to do in the whole process of this whole gig, because you're getting an opportunity to build, there's so much more to it than just having this great drink that photographs well and, you know, with hand-plucked ingredients that only happen every vernal equinox. And it's like, no, beyond that, once you've got the drink and you've had it, it's also about your setting, you know, and hospitality is obviously super huge, but there's also that, the space, what can the space do for you once you've already been wowed by the drink and wowed by
0: the hospitality? So- there's all sorts of creative ways in that. As, as an owner, it's not like something you should always maybe tell your staff when they're trying to create these new crazy things. It's like, well, is it going to be consistent? Can we always get these ingredients? Because at the end of the day, we have to have a product that will always be there when a guest come in and you also have to make money off of it. I think sometimes you see these great creations that sometimes a bartender will bring us. I'm like, well, we can't afford to put that on a menu and pay the bills. It looks great. And the other one for us is too is if you can't drink two of them, it's not making the menu. Yeah, Like I've,
1: you know, doing judging and having done so many cocktail competitions over the years, uh, I thought it was always very fascinating that some drinks would make it to these high levels when it was because the judges were taking the most minuscule sip of this drink. But I'm like, did you try drinking that whole thing? You got enough. It's toast. Your mouth is shot. You're done for the rest of the day. You know what I mean? So it's like, I want to make a drink that on like all of our drinks on our menu are drinks that you finish and you can have another one it's it didn't work your mouth out and to me that's a winner
2: yeah that's cool i love it guys i want to switch gears really quick and talk about social impact and giving back i mentioned before we started recording to be part of the podcast with beyond the play too and just celebrating how the industry gives back to the community and supports different causes and learning how all of our guests do it you know inspires us and the team along the way and hearing from listeners That were inspired by your stories and things like that. So I just want to give you a moment to shed some light on a cause or a charitable organization that you all may work with. Could be both you together, could be separate at, you know, your different spots. But yeah, Jamie, you want to fire away? I will
0: say that everything that we do here is usually topical to whatever events are going on. Anytime anybody's in need or there's a a tragedy of some sort or like we always throw a party to raise money for whatever is needed. Of course, we had a pretty bad luck stretch in Nashville from a, a bombing to a tornado right to COVID all back to back. I think COVID we gave out probably over twenty thousand free meals. We did every day, five days a week, we would get a brand such as Ford's. They actually probably helped us more than most. And we go, hey guys, we can't necessarily afford as a business right now because we're closed to just give out all these meals. But would a brand want to join us each day? We did a, a cocktail for them and a a bagged lunch. And that would go to any service industry out of work. We did that five days a week for three months. A different brand almost every single day, 100 to 200 free meals a day. And it gave our employees some extra work and also gave all the rest of the service industry um, a ton of that. It was a
1: really cool idea that and Jamie one who approached me about it because he came to me and he said, you know, it was the beginning of COVID and you had all these brands and everyone was trying to figure out how to do things and everything was shutting, shutting down. And there are these brands and they're like, how can we help? You know, and they're, ha- they're having calls with us and they're like, we want to help. We want to help. You know, my boss said, we can spend some money, but obviously we can't get anybody in there. We can't throw any parties or whatever. And he came to me and he's like, hey, dude, what do you think about slinging some food and, and having them like do some, you know, we could do to-go cocktails along with these things. And it was so amazing how effortless it was to get all of these brands day after day after day to, to swipe their card, to give out free food to the industry. Yeah it was, it was, and
2: it was great. it was great. Did you guys do that like independently or did you work through like an organization or anything? You just
0: That was me okay. on a phone call all day every day asking begging for for money.
2: I know there's different like there's like World Central Kitchen or like Rethink Food in New York. There's various people like that set up these programs for the industry. I didn't know if it was like funneled through one of those or
0: Jamie and Ben. Yeah. Company. Jamie would literally, <laughs> Jamie be on the,
1: Jamie would be on the phone, like locking down sponsors for days in advance if we could. And I'd be at my computer just waiting for the phone call and I'd be popping together a menu and popping together our socials for it. And we would just like, day after day after day. It was just like chasing tail. You wake up and you're like, okay, I'm chasing my tail again. We got to get it done before bar opens. Yeah.
0: Opens. (laughs) You know what I mean? Again, current current event-wise, whatever's going on in the world, we did a fundraiser for Hawaii the other day. And anything that's going on, especially in destinations that feel like it's a part of Pearl Diver anyway, I mean... Australia fires, Amazon fire, like anything like that. I mean, we do right away an event. The tornado, I think we raised $20,000 for people in need for the tornado, which was... It's incredible. We got hit really hard. It just barely missed our building. It hit some of our friends' bars. We lost some of our friends that worked at Attaboy down the road here and again we went from a bombing to a tornado to COVID and that was just I think three months of just throwing benefit parties and just anything we could do. Those tornadoes that was
1: probably the some of the busiest times that I've ever had with him. I mean we literally right now we're in the middle of building out a bar. He just opened up another one. We should right now fall into some purpose to be completely exploding. But that was busier because like we would get up in the morning, six in the morning and like he'd meet me at my house with like a coffee and a shovel and we would go and like, we were like roofing people's homes. And while we were doing all that stuff during the day, we were making calls to brands and then, th- and so then advertising that we we're going to throw a party that night. And then we would go home and shower, our, shower, change our clothes and head back here and act like we could,
0: we wanted to be here for a party all night long and then do it again the next day and the yeah. next day and the next day. I mean, it's Nashville. I mean, we're in Tennessee, it's the volunteer state. It really does show the community here when anybody needs help is, it's incredible.
2: Well, that's amazing, guys. Thanks for sharing all that. I no doubt there's something, but that's incredible. And it's it's why I love like having this conversation over and over, episode to episode. It just like re-energizes, reinforces. I had no doubt you guys did incredible things, but hearing that.
1: The Bomba Vans were actually back in the day when Josh and Scott were first starting out. The Bomba Vans day really turned my head on the the amount of social impact that the hospitality industry could have when the the duty arose. Because I mean, let's face it, can you? There's not a whole lot of other groups of people that can come together and handle a majorly chaotic situation with militant force like the hospitality industry. You can have heard, you know what I mean? It's just like, you grab all your crew and you're like, here's the deal, guys. We need four people up on that ladder. We need this, we need that, we need a bunch more nails. And everyone's like, heard, that's the hospitality industry.
2: I love it. Thanks for sharing all that. Before we part ways, we you know, I've been prefacing this. So sorry for those of you listening who hear this week after week, but in our chef focused episodes, you know, oftentimes we end it with them giving advice to their 25 year old self or a young cook coming up in the industry. And so we haven't really done it in these episodes, but I started to do it in these episodes and I love it. I love hearing the advice that these like talented ass, bartenders you all have to say to people. So I would love to get some piece of advice or two. I'm sure there's plenty more that you would give to a young or up and coming bartender in the industry.
0: It's the perfect timing because we have a new bar opening, Tiger Bar, soon. And we just started the interview process. Just looking over resumes and that interaction, it's its kind of like a perfect time to talk about it. But I'm sure there's a, a few things that I would say. But, I mean, we see all these bartenders that have worked 40 places in the last year. Just somewhat a sense of pride of where you're at as big. I'd say get the fuck over yourself.
1: That's what I would say to, especially to 25-year-old tw- to, to me. Uh, but to a lot of these kids, you know, there's ego is in some ways, a necessary evil for the bar industry. Sometimes it's a it's the coat you got to wear to get through the service, you know, especially if you're working a grueling place where you're just getting berated by guests. But yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is just get over yourself, man. You're not saving the whales. We're making drinks for people. And, you know, as Dave Wanderich one time told me, he said, you got one job to do. No, I don't care where you are and how long you've been doing it. You got one job as a bartender and that's to make people feel better about themselves when they walk out than they did when they walked in. If you can't do that, then you probably should figure out a different job
2: love it guys this was a blast i appreciate it but i love the direction this went and you know hearing more from you guys about your journey than we often speak about and thank you for sharing everything and thanks guys please swing on by yeah. thank you to get the recipe from this episode check out the episode notes in your podcast player or go to beyond the play podcast.com. this episode was produced by myself along with ian cohen joel Yutten, and sean petrosian Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at on Cappy's Plate or go to beyond the plate Podcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Drink, a production of Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy.